Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're bringing you the story of Jonathan Luna. He is—he was a United States assistant attorney before his tragic demise. We will get into this story in just a little bit, but first up, we're going to take a pit stop at our bartending lesson. bartending with Sloan. Today we are going to make a tequila cocktail. This one is called Tequila Mockingbird. I loved it. I had to to go with it. And then what's in it just made it even more so good. So you're going to need jalapeno, watermelon, like watermelon, the fruit, not flavored watermelon lemonade or no watermelon, silver tequila, lime juice, and agave or simple syrup, whatever you prefer. So you take a slice of jalapeno and a few cubes of watermelon, muddle those together, get the juices flowing, get the flavor there, then pour your tequila in, and then about three-fourths ounces of lime juice. I just did like one full of lime, squeeze that in there, and then three-fourths ounce of your syrup, agave, simple syrup, whatever you prefer to do. Shake it all together, pour it in a glass. If you've been around for a minute, you already know I love a tahine rim. So we're going to pair this one with a tahine rim today. You could also do salt, sugar, or just leave it as is, whatever. This is a good, simple summer drink with a very fun name. Tequila Mockingbird. All right. So as we said, today's case is that of Jonathan Luna. I was trying to find something, like, interesting to cover and... I was scrolling, I almost brought us the case of Tupac, oh. but then I saw this one, and it was listed as the most bizarre suicide ever, and I was like, huh? <laughs> and so then I got into it, and I was like, okay, now I get why you're saying this, so yeah, that to look forward to. But as we said, Jonathan was an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore, Maryland, and his death is a mystery. So before we get into that, I'm going to give you some little background on Jonathan. It's not a whole lot, but just to kind of get to know him a little bit. So Jonathan was born October 21st, 1965. He grew up in a housing project near Yankee Stadium in South Bronx. His father was Filipino and his mother was African American. He received an undergrad degree from Fordham University. And then he went on to study at the University of North Carolina School of Law. I do remember reading somewhere that he had a very, like, well, I won't say well-known, but, like, his roommate ended up going on to be, like, a 
lawyer for like the ACLU. So he he had a pretty uh, good roommate. So after like college, he went on and worked at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 1994. And the, um, he also then worked for the Federal Trade Commission from 1994 to 1997. And then he worked in a Brooklyn borough of New York for a while before he moved to Baltimore to become the assistant U.S. attorney. Jonathan also married Angela Hopkins, who was an obstetrician, on August 19th, 1993, and they went on to have two children. So, like I said, that's a little bit of a background about him. So, he is a very well-educated, and he's worked, you know, a few different jobs, so it's not like he doesn't really have, I guess, a background in, I guess, working in the smaller communities and stuff like that, so nothing that I would really think he would have too many enemies or anything about. So now let's move on to the day that he died. So at 11.38 p.m. on the night that he died, Jonathan left the Baltimore courthouse and went northeast on I-95. He used his EZ pass on I-95 into Delaware, but not on the New Jersey or Pennsylvania turnpikes. After, like, those, he pretty much used just, like, the toll tickets, which I don't understand. You have a pass, why are you paying? Maybe he thought that if he paid, it wouldn't scan his pass and it wouldn't be tracked back to him. Just remember that he has a pass, okay? (laughs) So, that's, it's a little weird. So, at 12.57 a.m., $200 was withdrawn from his bank account via an ATM at the JFK Plaza Center near Newark, Delaware. At 2.47, he crossed the Delaware River Toll Bridge to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and at 3.20, his debit card was used to buy gas at the Sunco King of Prussia service plaza. At 4.04, his car exited the turnpike at the Reading Lancaster Interchange, which is in Pennsylvania. And there's something to know about that toll ticket that he used. There's a spot of his blood on that toll ticket suggesting that he was injured at the time of that ticket being used. So if you want to kind of look at it from like a time point like reference from like the last time his debit card was used to like when he like 
put that toll ticket in and there's his blood. That is roughly about 45 minutes from the time he left the gas station. So after exiting the turnpike, he parked his car at the back of Sensing. I'm not exactly sure how you say the first part, but it's a it's called Sensing and Weaver Well Drilling Company. There from anything I saw, there's no connection to him at all with this drilling company other than the fact that that's where his car was parked. And this was on 1439 Dry Tavern Road in Denver, Pennsylvania. And it's later, like, so it's, you can see that his car was parked. I don't remember if it was on video or if, like, they could just tell, like, his car is parked. But then his car is then moved to the creek that is right by the building. At 5 a.m., the first employee arrives at the drilling company, and a half hour later, at 5.30, the car was noticed and its lights off and the front end was in the stream. The car, was, the car had blood smeared over the driver's door and the front left of the car. There was also a pool of blood in the rear seat. Like on the floor. So. A little strange. And then after they like kind of got done looking at like the inside of the car. Jonathan was discovered face down in the stream under the car's engine. He was wearing a suit and a black overcoat with his court ID around his neck. And here's the kicker. He was stabbed 36 times with his own pocket knife around his chest and neck, plus he had a head injury. But despite all that, his death was due to drowning. Mm-hmm. So... Investigators looked into this and they say they found no suspects or motive for murder. Despite his injuries, the FBI leaned towards calling his death a suicide. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. I'm just like... (sighs) So they say that he was alone. From the time he left his office until he was found. Meanwhile, local Lancaster County authorities, including two successive coroners, rule his death a homicide. When you look deeper into evidence, it was determined that a second blood type and a partial print were found. Also, They apparently have some grainy footage from the gas station that his debit card was last used. I don't know what they got from that. Every article I found that mentioned it just said they had this footage. They haven't released, like, 
what they have from that footage. <laughs> but it is interesting to note that they do have some video footage. So whether they can tell that it was him or not, I would be interested to know. So when they investigated even more, basically there is a lot of stuff that starts kind of popping up and it just gets very suspicious. I will say that this investigation remains kind of ongoing. So there's a lot of stuff that they're like, oh no, we don't want to release that. We don't want to talk about that because it could alter things. And it's like, okay. There is a $100,000 like reward for information leading to a conviction. So there's that. If you do know anything, you could possibly cash in. If you're like me, you're saying they're going, how could anyone rule his death a suicide? I mean, 36 stab wounds. And then you find yourself under the, like, front end of your car, face down in the, like, creek. Like, they say that's why, like, self, like, drowning is very hard because you're, like, naturally your body, like, tries to, like, pull itself out. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's very weird. So the initial report notes that he didn't have the expected defensive wounds on his hands that would, like, basically show him trying to fight off an attacker. So whether, you know, he would, like, That is a little odd because, I mean, I don't care if you're like, cool, end it. (laughs) I feel like you would just still naturally be like, no, like, put your hands up. But there is that. Also, they do note that his wounds, like the 36 stab wounds, are not deep, which is a sign of hesitation from himself, possibly. So that just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. Why would you stab yourself that many times? Yeah. It's just, it's strange. You also want to kind of look for like what a motive could possibly be for like why he would like possibly try to take himself out. And there is one that is suggested because apparently before he like was killed, he was supposed to have an upcoming polygraph test concerning three not sorry concerning $36,000 which disappeared from a bank robbery case that he had prosecuted so if he's guilty of like taking that money like yeah you don't want that to catch up with you especially if you're an assistant U.S. like attorney so (laughs) that could definitely be a reason why he would try to take himself out um 
Jonathan's wife said, like, she was unaware of, like, a few things. Like, he apparently had a charge card that she was, she knew nothing about. Um, he also had $25,000 in credit card debt. So, if you're going to steal 36000 that's going to go towards your debt, for sure. So, there are a few things definitely pointing, like, why he would do it. But also, do I think he did it? Not really. Another theory is that Jonathan was fabricating a kidnap and attack and that it went too far. So, trying to pull an old Alex Murdaugh, were you? Um, <laughs> so, that is also, I think, a very good possibility. He could have set something up to kind of be like, no, see, I was, like, forced to do all this stuff. Blah, blah, blah. But then, like, it ended up taking his life so I mean it's it's a little strange so those are kind of like the things sort of supporting like a possible suicide and whatnot but now I want to bring up like the whole homicide aspect of the case so Lancaster County prosecutors noted that Jonathan left his glasses which he needed to drive, and his cell phone on his desk. So if you're like me, you know what it's like to need, like, contacts or glasses. I don't know what his prescription was like, but I know <laughs> that if I don't have my contacts or glasses, I sure as hell, I'm not even, Sloan lives, like, literally a mile from me. I don't even trust myself to drive from my house to Sloan's without my contacts or glasses. And I could probably do it in my sleep. <laughs> Yet he's gonna drive across state lines without glasses that he apparently needs. And a cell phone. Sometimes I get about two minutes. I get, I get to the main road outside of my apartment complex. And then I'm like, shit, I forgot my glasses. Yeah, no. So, like I said, I don't know how bad his eyesight was, but for them to note that he needed them, that's a little, that's a little sus. So, another little important note is that he had called defense attorneys earlier in the night saying he would fax over documents that night, but they never arrived. So... A little, little odd. And if you remember, I brought up the fact that there was a pool of blood in the floor of like the back seat of his car. So this suggests that Jonathan was in the back seat while someone else drove his car. So there has been some like legal actions that have started like kind of taking place. From like 2007 to as recently as January 13th, 2021. So 
this is like I said, this is still a current ongoing thing. So there's been some stuff. And it's basically dealt with like the sealing and trying to unseal records and just like kind of the investigation into his death. They had to basically fight to like make sure that his death was being investigated. Then there was the whole like, oh, we need to unseal these records. But they like somebody fought to get them sealed. And so like it's just been a whole thing back and forth. The latest ruling was that records would remain sealed because if they were released, it could possibly hinder or jeopardize the open and active ongoing criminal investigation. So it's a little weird. Now, there is, there's been a few different private investigators looking into this, but one of the ones that has been really involved is somebody called William Buckingham. And he is a former police detective who says he believes there is more to the case than, like, what officials are letting on. And he kind of believes that the death is kind of leading to a cover-up by FBI and, like, state officials, (laughs) which... I mean, you gotta think the FBI was very adamant that it was a suicide. So, it's very possible. He said that he knows who sanctioned it, who did it, and who, like, was behind the hit. So, I mean, I feel like that's a little weird, because if you know that, then why aren't you going to police? Why aren't you proving this? But I also know, like, police and private investigators sometimes do not have the best uh, relationships. So, one of the things he brings up is that whoever did the hit had to have been known by security in the court, or, like, had to have had a badge, because he believes that, basically... He, that Jonathan was taken from his office to his car, and then, like, this is what the whole thing ensued and whatnot. So, if that happened, obviously, the guy would have had to have made it past security somehow. So, it's a little strange. Also... He brings up that there had to have been a second car involved because if you're going with the theory of someone else, like, killing him and it happening in the car and whatnot, obviously the car itself was still there at the scene. So how did the person get away? There's no mention of any footprints or anything, so obviously there had to have been a second car that was a getaway car. So there are a lot of questions that kind of surround this case, and Buckingham really wants to, like, solve it. Whether it will be solved or not, I don't know. I do know that, you know, obviously his family does deserve some sort of justice and, like, closure, and if it's a FBI cover-up, I don't think they'll ever get that because, yeah, I think FBI doesn't want to admit that they killed somebody. 
So, yeah, it's, it's a little, this one was a little weird, and I get why they say it's one of the oddest suicides ever, because, again, 36 stab wounds, and then you're found face down in a creek. If you're going to kill yourself, I believe you're probably going to, you're not going to wedge yourself under face down. You're going to try to be on your back because that's going to be your easiest motion. And then you're going to try to like push yourself like under. So it, it, it was a little weird, but like I said, it was one I stumbled upon. It was interesting. It wasn't, it's not one that there's super a lot of information, but the stuff I did find, I was like, one of those tinfoil hat ones. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be on the uh, suicide side or are you going to be on the homicide? And then do you believe it's cover up? Do you not? Do you think it's an unfortunate like series of events? Like what? I thought it was interesting. I wanted to share it. And yeah. I guess let us know what you think. If you do have information, um, reach out to your proper authorities. And I guess with that being said, I will kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another last call with Sloan. It is March. And for me, y'all know I'm a holiday person, (laughs) you know. So it's St. Patrick's Day month. That's what March means in my language. St. Patrick's Day month. And last year I did St. Patrick's Day facts. And this year I was like, what can I do? It is like St. Patrick's Day, but not St. Patrick's Day. And the only thing that ever comes to my mind whenever I think of the Irish culture, this is very offensive the way I'm wording this. Oh, Lord. P.S. I Love You with Gerard oh, Butler. Oh, gosh. Yes. I that mean, that's movie. one that pops up, but also uh, Leap Year. Yeah, I forget about that one. I also <laughs> I think love of. That one. I also think of. Uh, the Irish Luck, the Disney oh Channel gosh, movie. Yes. <laughs> that one's incredibly that one's, offensive. Say that one, you get leprechauns and that one's like, incredibly offensive. Them being little people. <laughs> yes, oh yes. gosh, yeah. So, anyways, the safer bet. <laughs> P.S. I love you. It has Gerard Butler. They go on a girls' trip. I mean, what is there not to love? Let's get to it. To let all of us dream of going on a girl's trip and just coming back with some foreign man. It never happened. <laughs> <sighs> Number one. Gerard Butler seriously injured Hillary Swank on set. Oh. Appearing on the Drew Barrymore show, Butler admitted that one of his lowest days on set was when he accidentally sent Hillary Swank to the hospital in need of stitches. He said, I almost killed her. You know the scene where I'm dancing and I have the suspenders? Butler said that scene took a day and a half to film and he was already feeling silly dancing around nonstop in his boxers (laughs) when it got so much worse. At one point, the clip, which was a crocodile clip, got stuck on the television as I'm crawling towards her. She's right in front of me and she's laughing hysterically. It released. Boom. Flies over my head. Hits her in the head. Slashes her head. I mean, I cut her open. You could even see the teeth of the clip. She had to get taken to the hospital and I'm just sitting there in my Irish chamois boxer shorts. (laughs) And my boots and a pair of socks. And I just started crying. <laughs> oh, Ugh, My heart. 
The actor says that the combination of feeling self-conscious in his dancing scenes and injuring a superstar like Swank had him experiencing massive imposter syndrome on set. And let me just say, if it came down to Hillary Swank or Gerard Butler, I think we all know where the vote's going. Don't you worry. <laughs> Don't you worry, Gerard. You are not an imposter. Two. Butler publicly apologized for his terrible Irish accent. Not only did Butler experience imposter syndrome, but he also faced massive backlash after the film's release because of his poor attempts at an Irish accent. Irish dialect coach Nick Redmond shouted out Butler's performance on Den of Geek as he ranked best and worst accents for the publication. I really wanted to give shout outs to Gerard Butler and P.S. I Love You, As an Irish person, I found that pretty horrific, Redmond said. The criticism was so bad that during an interview on his press tour for Guy Ritchie's Rock and Rolla, Butler publicly apologized to his fans. I was hoping they'd be quite forgiving of me, me being a little Scottish boy whose family are Irish. Whose family are Irish. When people bring it up, they try not to say anything. I get the feeling it wasn't that good. Both the interviewer and Butler laugh as he apologized for his attempt. I would like to apologize to the nation of Ireland for completely abusing your accent. I realize that it's a much more beautiful language and accent than what I gave, but I tried my best. I mean, you got to think Scottish is, is probably what I'd say. It's definitely one of the harder, um, like dialect Scottish or Irish. I feel like both. Well, Scottish, I feel like it's one of those, like if you're true, like Scottish person, it's one that is very hard to try to mask in other languages, especially one like that's Irish because call us dumb Americans. They sound <laughs> very similar to each other. It does to us to, I'm going to say the majority. I feel like I can kind of pick out the difference. Like, whenever yeah, I hear you it. can, but like, yeah, there are some, like if I'm passing by, unless you say a certain word, I'm going to be like, wait, are you Scottish or Irish? Yeah. Number three, none of the leads are Irish. Terrible accents aside, despite the author of the book being Irish, it being set in Ireland and the movie being partially filmed there, none of the lead cast are Irish. A lot of the novel storyline was changed to suit an American audience, including moving the main character's lives to New York over Dublin and changing Swank's character to be an American. However, many fans of the book felt this made the story lose its charm. Headstuff identified the only two actors in the film who were actually Irish were the pair cast as Butler's parents. <laughs> Yet even this casting appears lazy as both have distinctly upper-class Dublin accents, according to the publication, despite Butler's character supposedly coming from a working-class background. I mean... <clears throat> yeah. Number four, the letters remained the same. While the film took a lot of liberties with the novel, one thing that remained untouched were the letters. The backbone of the story is the letters Jerry leaves behind for the love of his life, Holly, to help her get past his death. Apparently, the screenwriter left all the letters identical to how they appear in the book. Well, that's something good to notice, ain't it? (laughs) I ain't even want to try the Irish accent. Ain't it? (laughs) Five. Jeffrey Dean Morgan learned guitar for his part. Oh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan plays Swank's love interest, a symbolic character representing her ability to move on from loss. While he had a little screen time in the movie, he took his role seriously and organized to learn guitar for it. 
His homework paid off as it became borderline impossible not to fall in love with him, his guitar, and his dimples by the end of the film. I mean, that's the truth. What's this pre or post um, Grays? Because doesn't he play Denny? Yes. I don't know. You you can Google that while I continue <laughs> on my fun facts. And then you can have your fun fact about P.S. I Love You. Six. Jerry's urn design had meaning. In the film, Holly has a flair for design, which she figures out later. Designs Jerry's urn after his death at his own request. This detail is used to suggest that her husband knew her better than she even knew herself. Picking up on her interests and talents when she couldn't see them. But what the audience may not have picked up on is that the specific design on Jerry's urn was intentionally made to match his guitar case, which we see in some of the scenes set in the couple's apartment. That's so cute. Number seven, there was a little and a scary Easter egg. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. The business Jerry owns in America is called in a scary and a scary limo, which is mentioned in passing in the first half of the film. This little nugget becomes far more meaningful in the latter half when the audience realizes that Anascari is Jerry's hometown and where he ultimately sends Holly to reset. It's also a very real village in Ireland, so apologies that I butchered that. 30 minutes south of Dublin with a population of only 1,889. Nate, you want to make it 1891? (laughs) Oh, Lord. Number eight. Hilary Swank needed some diversity in her portfolio. Director Richard Lagravenese intentionally cast Swank in the role of Holly after having just worked with her on Freedom Riders. The director believed that Swank needed to show her audience a lighter side of her, but that might have been to her detriment. Her comedic moments in the film are considered to be her worst, whereas the darker, more emotional moments are where Swank shone. Swank shone. Yeah, her. Because... It's her and like Harry Connick. They're both very like I love Harry awkward. Connick. Yeah, I do love them both, but like their scenes together are very awkward. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's in Law and Order SVU, and if not, he has a twin. It could be, you know, yeah. but love. I love him regardless. He's got an album and all this other stuff. So, Grey's Grey's Anatomy start like when Denny gets kind of put in. It starts in like 2006, and P.S. I Love You came out in 2007, so it's like pretty much back to back. Right. Uh, number nine, Harry Connick Jr. can't get a break. Harry Connick Jr. plays Daniel, a bartender with Asperger's syndrome who is head over heels in love with Holly, but kind of stuck in the friend zone. As Holly heals through the film, Daniel plays a part in helping her, actually getting her to laugh again, and she responds by accidentally calling him Jerry. The fun fact here is that this is the uh, the fun fact here is that this is at least the second time one of Harry Connick Jr.'s characters get called the wrong name by a potential love interest. This also happens in his film Hope Floats. I was gonna say Hope Floats. Oh, Sandy. Mm. Number ten. A sequel was slash is in the works. Author of the original novel, Cecilia Aaron wrote a sequel to her novel in 2019 called Postscript. Set seven years after Jerry dies, Holly joins her sister on her podcast to tell the story of Jerry's letters. Her story inspires a group of fans called the PSI Love You Club, who function as a support group and look to Holly for advice on how to leave their own messages to loved ones after they pass away. 
According to Mind Food in 2020, Alcon Entertainment, who produced the first film, also gained the rights to Postscript, and Swank was reportedly keen to reprise her role as Holly. However, there has not been any news on the project since, which might mean that it was canned, but also we all know that COVID hit right yeah. at the end of 2019. I also don't know how I'd feel about that. <laughs> I mean, I am a little aggravated with it, only because I feel like ever since the world has started, quote unquote, reopening after COVID, all we have seen are remakes and the next chapter of these classic movies and quite frankly i'm tired of it like the the creative directors that are our age and are the ones that are producing this stuff at this point they need to be actually creative right. and not just taking stuff from our childhood being like oh people are gonna love this because this is from our childhood i want to see new stuff like i'm tired of seeing my stuff getting destroyed <laughs> and even if it's not destroyed it's still not the classic like in the past five years alone we've had beauty and the beast remade like three times yeah. in the past five years alone let's find something else let's do something new stop taking my childhood from me <laughs> uh, so, although if you do want to give me a live action um anastasia, anastasia. with a very good looking dimitri i would i wouldn't be um i wouldn't be upset, upset. Yeah. yeah 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 but that's what i'm saying like <laughs> and that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a bad idea but like Keeping on remaking Beauty and the Beast just because you know everybody loves it, that's tiresome. Keeping on remaking Scream over and over again, like we're just getting a new Scream movie again. Yeah. Like, what, the eighth one? <laughs> Find new things. There's... Ah! So on that note, I would love to see this, but it would also aggravate me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Thank you for riding on the Hot Mess Express today. You can find us on our social medias. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all tequila, she wrote. You can also email us with any case suggestions, cocktail recipes. You know the drill. Tequila, she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You'll get ad-free episodes. And then if you want like some bonus content, you can look at what we offer in our different tiers. And kind of decide how much you're willing to pay and what all you want. And yeah, if you want to find us there, easiest way is by going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. And if you can't find us that way, either shoot us the message or an email and we'll direct you how to get there. Or we do have like a link tree that should have a direct link to our Patreon there. So Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. beep.